Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Welcome back, everyone. I am thrilled to be speaking today with Jen Nolan, the lead oncology nutrition consultant of Remission Nutrition. With over two decades of experience and education in the holistic and clinical nutrition field, Jen has a wealth of knowledge and her passion for the subject is truly contagious. She received her undergraduate degree in food science, human nutrition, and dietetics, and holds a master's degree in holistic nutrition. She's also a certified nutrition genome practitioner and has her 250-hour oncology nutrition consulting certification and is also a certified metabolic balance coach. Jen is experienced in several dietary therapies, such as a therapeutic ketogenic diet, paleo for autoimmune disorders, and metabolic and hormone balancing plans, just to name a few. Nutrient density and the use of high-quality whole food is the backbone of any of her approaches, and she customizes nutrition plans based on her clients' unique genetics. Jen, welcome to the show. I am so grateful to have you here. And just reading through your bio again, I feel like we are such kindred spirits because we both have very similar passions and become incredibly excited anytime the topic of nutrition arises in conversation. Agreed. It's so good to be here. Thanks, Jacqueline. I'm excited. Of course. So Jen, you are very well-versed in different dietary approaches for a multitude of chronic illnesses. But for purposes of this conversation, I'd really love to focus on the ideal nutrition for a patient with active cancer or a patient who has had cancer and is looking to prevent recurrence. So with that, we know that everyone has a unique genetic makeup, right? Therefore, everyone has personalized nutrition needs. How do you go about identifying the proper nutrition plan for a cancer patient? Well, first of all, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes some time. We have a pretty extensive intake form uh, with remission nutrition. So people give us a lot of information and we really base our nutrition programs. It's very lifestyle nutrition on this kind of terrain approach. And I think you've talked about this, the terrains on your show, but when we go through, when people go through our intake form, they're answering questions that are sort of giving us a window into their terrain. And so that really helps us. We also, if available, love to look at a genetic report. Um, we like to use nutrition genome just because that's really geared toward nutrition and lifestyle practices. So we can understand their genetics. We understand their lab work if they share it with us and looking at their particular type of cancer, where they are in their journey. Um, are they in, are they in remission now? Are they looking to prevent cancer? Are they in active treatment? It really depends on a lot of different things. My mom actually did the nutrition genome testing not too long ago, and it was fascinating just reading through that report. I also saw that you're a certified metabolic balance coach, and I never heard of that. So for listeners, that's a nutrition system based on a client's blood values. And again, like their unique health profile, and it was founded by what this, this German doctor. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, it's fascinating. And actually, I started working with this company um, before I became an oncology nutrition consultant. And so I was working in it um, 
uh, yeah, before I was working in cancer specifically. And so it was really fascinating in the US. It's all over the world, actually, this company, this uh, metabolic balance company, and there's coaches all over the world. So in the US, it's really sort of touted as a weight loss program. And that's because in the US, there's a lot of need for that. And so I started working with people and learned a lot from metabolic balance. And when I started learning more about this metabolic approach to cancer through the Oncology Nutrition Institute program, I was blown away. I was like, whoa, there are so many correlations here. And, you know, while I didn't learn as much about how to look at blood work, they would get lab work done and it would go into sort of this computer program, this algorithm, and then it would spit out a plan based on the person's blood work and all of their other information. It's so cool. Um, And again, it was more for, you know, people wanting to lose weight, but I was seeing all these great things happening with people like they're everything was normalizing, you know, it would be their digestion was getting better. Their mental, emotional well-being was getting better. They were more clear. They were obviously losing weight. It really did work. Um, so that was really my step into this whole idea around, you know, utilizing lab work. It was so cool. And this metabolic approach, while different, um, metabolic balance is certainly different. It still utilized a lot of like not snacking, taking pauses in between eating and not eating all throughout the day. And it was really very, very, like I said, balanced. Well, it's not a ketogenic plan, nor is it for cancer specifically, but it really helped me kind of understand. Then when I went into this metabolic approach to cancer with Jess Kelly um, and the training I did with her, I was like, oh, this is awesome. So that's incredible. Definitely want to further look into that. And I love the mission of remission nutrition and advocating again that metabolic nutrition should be a part of a cancer patient standard of care. And you, of course, are intimately familiar with Dr. Nisha Winters and her book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And I know that you essentially based your protocol regarding dietary nutrition mostly on that. So what are some key focus areas from Dr. Winters' approach that you strongly advise cancer patients to follow? I think that one of the big important things is making sure that they're working with a team of people that are versed in this metabolic approach. So if they have us at Remission Nutrition, and maybe they have a terrain um, trained doctor by Dr. Nisha Winters, that feels really important um, to me if everybody can do that. And not everybody can, but if they can, that's awesome. The other big principle that I always hear Nisha saying is test, assess, address, don't guess. And so a lot of times it's hard because even getting lab work, you know, this is challenging. And if we live in certain states, it's even more challenging because there's a few states around the country where you can't get lab work done. Even we work with a lot of people that live in other countries as well. So we're, our practice is worldwide. And even there, like the, it's harder in some places to get lab work. So if they're working with a terrain doctor, I would say, I would call them trained by Dr. Nisha. They might be an integrative doctor. They might be, um, you know, a naturopathic oncology doc. Um, They can help with a lot of that stuff. It's sometimes it becomes out of our scope as, you know, nutrition consultants. But um, so test, assess, address, we really want to make sure we aren't just guessing and 
you know, I really, again, it's going through all of these different terrains that are talked about in the book by Jess and Nisha. So, um, yeah, does that help? Love that answer. And switching a bit. So Dr. Nisha advocates for a ketogenic approach, right? And keto for cancer, Jen, I feel like is such a nuanced area. And I feel like it's a double-edged sword for a few reasons, right? And I'd really love to get your thoughts on that. So first of all, I've read some animal studies that showed a keto diet may slow the growth of cancer cells, but it also promoted cachexia or for listeners, you know, the wasting that's associated with late stage cancer. And there's been a decent amount of literature that's also shown plant-based diets are better than keto diets in the long term. And you know, we know that cancer cells feed on fermentable fuels like glucose and the amino acid glutamine, but we also know that not all cancers function the same and then cells do eventually adapt and source fuel from other sources. And I was recently reading a PubMed study that showed, you know, in the absence of glucose, cancer cells can get fuel from this process called gluconeogenesis, which for listeners is basically, you know, the process of making glucose from non-glucose sources like the breakdown of fats or proteins. So certainly we know this to be true because if we look at patients who fast for 40 days, they still have stable blood sugar levels, right? So what is your take, Jen, on, on all of that? Well, you're not alone because this conversation happens at Remission Nutrition daily. And it's really hard when you're in the seat of you know, we call, we don't use the word patient. We use the word client because that's what, you know, we're working with. But when you're in that seat, you are bombarded by all these different things, all these different ideas and all these different research studies and articles, and it's overwhelming as can be. And so what I will go back to is the terrain every single time. So we don't treat cancer We don't treat anything because we're not doctors, but we really focus on the terrain. And just to remember that there are these hallmarks of cancer. And that is very much sort of conventional medicine speak, right? That's the hallmarks of cancer are known. That's how they they use these hallmarks of cancer to sort of um, develop different treatments, right? Different drugs and things like that. So those hallmarks are these sort of superpowers, let's say, of cancer cells. And we know that this, whether it's a ketogenic diet or not, a low carbohydrate diet, usually keto, different levels of keto, right? Can kind of hit on all of those different hallmarks. So we know just an example that inflammation is one of the hallmarks of cancer right? Cancer cells love being in an inflammatory environment and they thrive there. So we know that we can use a more ketogenic diet and that will bring down inflammation. We're balancing blood sugar. If balance, if blood sugar is on a roller coaster, we've got inflammation. So that's just one example of how the ketogenic approach can, or this metabolic approach can really help with all of those different hallmarks of cancer. And if you think about the terrains, they're very correlated, right? Inflammation is one of the terrains that we look at. So we're not just going after, say, um, the pathways of cancer, right? It's always going back to the terrain, the terrain, terrain. Terrain becomes this 
beautiful, healthy, inhospitable place for cancer to grow and thrive. And then we're good. So we know that, you know, I've had a lot of clients through the years that oftentimes people will get a cancer diagnosis and they'll go directly to a raw food, um, you know, vegan diet. And we, they come to us and we look at their labs, we look at them and how they're feeling and they're really depleted oftentimes, malnourished, you know? And so I think it's so important to get in this, you know, some animal protein if possible, more fat. People aren't eating fat because they're afraid that it might drive cancer's process in order to get any of those nutrients in, if somebody's juicing or they're eating only raw veggies, they don't have any fat, they're not going to be able to absorb those nutrients. That makes sense. And that that's my next question, Jen, you led right into it. <laughs> what are what are your thoughts on, again, this plant-based raw food approach to managing cancer versus a more carnivore, meat-heavy approach? And I know that, you know, among one of the main reasons for decreasing meat consumption that people in the plant-based realm advocate for is that it increases insulin-like growth factor, which prompts cells to grow. And then I've also read that cancer cells exhibit an enhanced dependence on iron for growth. So what is your take on those two mindsets? Well, I'll go back to that statement that test assess, address, don't guess. So we can actually see what um, somebody's IGF-1 is looking like in lab work. Is it optimal? Is it not? That might help us make some decisions. Um, we also want to remember that when we're eating... What, okay, let me go back to plant-based really quickly because I have a bit of a soapbox on this one. And what I think, this is my thought on plant-based is that I actually feel like we can all be plant-based. That just means that the majority of our plate is plants. Yeah. So that makes sense to me, right? Where, when did plant-based become vegetarian and vegan, right? So if we are all eating a plant-based diet where most of our, again, our plate looks like vegetables, that's awesome, right? And then let's put in some of those other of the macronutrients so we know we're getting enough. We don't need to have half of our plate full of a big giant steak that's full marbly and full of fat. That's not what I'm talking about, right? So it's moderate protein for a lot of people. It's as many fibrous vegetables as possible. And it's gobs of really healthy fat, but that doesn't mean that it's from lard and you know bacon fat and all those things. That's from really beautiful olive oil. Olive oil is a plant you know? And so that's where I go with that. And so I, that's my language around it. It's like, yes, we could all be plant-based. I couldn't agree more with that. And again, people do think when people say plant-based, it's vegetarian. And I'm like, no, it is not by any means. That was a beautiful response. And Dr. Thomas Seafried, who I'm sure you're familiar with, author of Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, who will actually be speaking with in the next week. He talks about the importance of getting a patient with active cancer into what we call therapeutic ketosis, right? And that's ensuring their GKI is two or below, which of course is not easy. What is your ideal GKI range if you're looking to get someone into that quote unquote therapeutic state? And what are some tips do you have for patients who are 
just beginning their journey and their GKI is six or above. And they're like, I can't eat anything because it's going to spike my, my glucose. Yeah. I mean, again, it's back to this bio-individuality, right? Everybody is different. Um, and again, we might look at some genetic components and just see, um, but let's talk about what the GKI is. I'm not sure if everybody knows, but the glucose ketone index is what the GKI is. It's a brilliant measure and it's basically looking at glucose and ketones. And what we want is we want our glucose to come down and we want our ketones to come up. So it's a great guide to use. What I find is with some people in the beginning. So if we have somebody who comes to us that's been eating sort of a standard American diet, they are really glucose dependent. Their um, glucose is through the roof. Their hemoglobin A1C might be super high. All these fasting insulin's high. They might be a little, it might be a little harder to use the GKI right away for them. So we might just use the ketone measure. We're still going to look at their blood sugar, but we're going to focus more on what their ketones are doing because it might take a bit to get their blood sugar to come down enough to get a decent GKI. Okay. So, so what I look at for a therapeutic ketogenic diet is a one to three on the GKI. So that's usually what I use. And, um, then we go into, you know, nutritional ketosis and things like that, which is a little bit, obviously a higher number on the GKI. Um, and it gives a little bit more leeway. So does every single person who comes to us have to be on a therapeutic ketose, keto diet? No, we do a lot of different things and it really depends again on where somebody is. But if we have a doctor and naturopathic doctor, that's like, here's a client or a patient of theirs, a client who has say, you know, GBM that has brain cancer. They're like, this client is struggling to get into ketosis. We need to get them into therapeutic ketosis with that type of cancer. We will want to get as low on that GKI as we can. And how do we get them in fast? Because we might not have a lot of time to like just willy nilly it, right? We're like, let's do this. Okay. So then we might use fasting and fasting can really help push somebody into ketosis faster. Um, we will use things like, you know, MCT eight oil for them that can help the body produce more ketones. And we're going to drop their carbohydrates down significantly and we're going to really raise their fat. So that's how we would get them in fast. Now, if I don't have to do that with somebody, we've got a little bit more luxury and time and like to kind of ease them in. Sometimes people do a little bit better. They feel better. They don't have that, you know, ketogenic flu. We can kind of ease them in. That makes sense. And interestingly, I know that a majority of Dr. Sufri's work is on patients with glioblastoma and the benefits of the ketogenic diet specifically for that type of cancer, right? Because there really is no other, even conventionally, like cure things to help manage it. And we know that different types of cancers function differently. How would your approach, and I know everyone's personalized and it does come down to terrain, but how would your approach differ in coaching a woman with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer versus someone who is HER negative? So again, I've heard that fiber plays a key role in helping the body detox from estrogen. So if someone presents with an estrogen-driven cancer, would your goal be, let's say, to increase fiber intake more so than putting them maybe in a therapeutic ketogenic state? 
Well, right. And so back to my sort of the, the ketogenic diet that I love is a very plant forward, plant heavy, more Mediterranean style diet. And so again, that's what I described. That's fatty fish for protein. That's, you know, animal proteins, um, as much as we can that are maybe more lean, right? And then we're going to draw in all of these veggies and the olives and olive oil and things like that. So my, um, there might be specific little things that we put in and maybe it's a different level of ketosis for them. Um, if they are doing certain therapies, and I know on your show you interview, you know, you did the interview about the HBOT or hyperbaric oxygen. Hearing him talk about it, right? He was like, "We need, we want somebody to be in therapeutic ketosis when they're doing HBOT." So we take that into consideration too, right? How can we get this client into a therapeutic ketosis when they're getting into that machine? Maybe other days they're living in more of a nutritional ketosis, right? And then we slide them into that and we use different techniques. But I feel like um, for somebody with maybe a hormone, I mean, a lot of cancers have hormonal components to them. Um, and yes, we do go back to the terrain, but we know fiber is very important. Really supporting one of the terrains is the is toxic burden, right? We want to make sure that we're taking care of all of those places where our bodies detox, particularly those excess estrogens, right? How can we do that? So we're ta- making sure that they're detoxing through their skin because that's a huge detox organ. How's their liver doing? How can we support their liver nutritionally? We love using like bitter greens. So I'm always like, okay, let's do an awesome olive oil sort of pesto with basil and dandelion greens. Love it. You know, it's my favorite, right? So there's all kinds of things we can do to help the body detox. And then, you know, we will for some people, it depends on the person, but we might use ground flax. And I know there's some controversy around that, but it can really be helpful. I've seen, you know, we use the um, the Dutch test, a lot of our clients use the Dutch hormone test, the saliva test, or sorry, dried urine test. And we have seen changes in their, their Dutch test results by, you know, changing some things, including using some ground flax. So it helps the body digest it's high in fiber and it can kind of mop out those extra estrogens. And people ask me all the time, they're like, yeah, but I'm not menstruating anymore. Yeah, but I don't, I'm not producing estrogens. Yeah. Well, we are also really exposed to a lot of exogenous estrogens. And if you're somebody who has, you know, some SNPs, some genetic issues around your ability to detox estrogens, you want to pay pretty close attention to what you're being exposed to and how your body is getting rid of them. So we detox through the gut, we detox through the liver, we detox through the skin. How are we supporting those mechanisms? That's something that's really important with somebody with a hormonally driven cancer. Also, think about broccoli. Uh, cruciferous vegetables are like numero uno, right? Broccoli for the um, I3C or the you know indole three carbonyl, and that can come from broccoli sprouts too. So that's like, if somebody is dealing with that sort of cancer, I'm like, okay, how can you get fresh broccoli sprouts in daily? Yeah. Ground flaxseed, Jen, and 
broccoli sprouts are staples in my mom's diet. I essentially make them like every single day. Let's include these. And also too, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with the term ketotarian diet. That's the one that I advocate for. And when people ask me, oh, what's the ideal, you know, breast cancer diet? Again, ketotarian, mostly plant-based, high quality proteins in there. Huge fan of wild caught salmon. Um, That's my go-to in eggs. Um, But with that, I did have a question going back to to blood sugar control too. So my mom, for example, has been on this ketotarian diet for the past two to three years. Very low carb, healthy fats, a lot of plants. She's struggled with consistently elevated blood sugar levels, like in the 90s to the point where, you know, I proposed incorporating metformin at one point. But how do you reconcile someone with that high of a blood sugar who is on a ketotarian diet. And I've heard, you know, a few other folks say, oh, it could be stress because we know cortisol can also lead to elevated blood sugar levels. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And, you know, we deal with this often. So sometimes, you know, it's the time that they're eating, that people are eating. Um, Are they doing a little bit of intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating? Are they grazing throughout their eating window? Or are they, I always call it like clumping your food, you know, are they putting the right things together? Um, So are they having fat when they're having a carbohydrate? It's really important. That can help balance blood sugar. So Fiber, fat, and protein all slow down that sugar load to the body. So that's going to help. Sleep. How are they sleeping? It's huge. Stress is giant. I, I, I mean... There are so many people that we've worked with. I had this great, this woman that I was working with and she was using her continuous glucose monitor. And she said she was sitting in the kitchen. She was all chill and she, her son came in and they had a little something like a little bit of a argument about something. And she said she checked her CGM right after her. And she was like, her blood sugar was through the roof. I'm like, exactly. So stress, right? Yeah. And stress can be, you know, different for everybody because we all handle stress differently. And so we talk about that so much with our clients and how to really work, like what's in your toolbox for stress? How can you bring down that nervous system? And there's so many different ways to do it. Um, So that's huge. Also medications, you know, certain medications can make an impact. Um, You know, if somebody's doing steroids, that can really impact both ketones and blood sugar. So, you know, we just kind of, I love this work because I always feel like I'm a private investigator. We're like, okay, you know, let's dig in and see what else can we kind of uncover and see what's going on. And um, yeah, and that that's a common conversation we have for sure. I love that. No, and I, I shared it with my mom too. I'm like, did you meditate today? 10 minutes of clearing your mind, watch your blood sugar drop. She recently started using a keto mojo to really like pin down certain things, but uh, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey for sure. It is. Yes. What are your thoughts on these three? What I feel like are very opinionated topics. <laughs> so this is caffeine, protein powders, and alcohol consumption. Oh, Yes. Well, again, (laughs) it depends on the person. So I say that a thousand times a day, right? Um, I look at with caffeine, I'll definitely look at somebody if I have their genetic report. It's really cool because you can see um, how, like how a person might metabolize caffeine. It's fascinating. 
And sometimes it doesn't always resonate with them. And I'm not sure what that's all about. But, you know, for instance, I have a very um, fast metabolism, metabolism, according to my genetics for caffeine, which means that I might drink it and it whooshes it right out, right? If you're in the middle or maybe slow, then you might hold on to it a little bit more, you might feel more agitated or jittery. What I think about with that is how is that raising our cortisol and in turn raising our blood sugar? You can test it. You can check your, you know, you can drink caffeine, you can check your blood sugar and see if it's having an impact. Um, I think when, so, if it's coffee that somebody's drinking, I'm really, really interested in knowing what kind of coffee, how they're making it. Is it certified mold free? Is it organic? Yeah. How much are they drinking? Are they sleeping well? Are they having it in the middle of the day or just in the morning? Are they drinking a whole pot? Are they drinking it, you know, just one cup? So we can look at genetics again and go, okay, well, maybe you stick to one cup of caffeine a day because you are a slow, according to your genes, a slow metabolizer. And if somebody is a, this is a big, long conversation around genetics, but if they happen to be more of an estrogen sponge based on their genetics, then they can sometimes use caffeine. Well, they would want to avoid if they're more, if they're a estrogen sponge, then they might want to avoid or really minimize caffeine. Um, but it, it's just a really interesting conversation that we could, like I said, go into another time, but, um, yeah, that's caffeine. So again, it really depends. Right. My mom's going to be curious to hear that. She will not give up her coffee. I'm sure you've heard of Purity Coffee. Yes, it's one of my great. favorite brands. She'll limit her, her daily intake of that to maybe two cups a day. But yeah. coffee is something that's been very challenging for her to even consider giving up. Well, and I really feel like this is where everybody, and I didn't say this earlier, but one of the biggest important things that we do, and Nisha really teaches this well, we really try to meet people where they are. And a lot of times people are really struggling with, you're taking ev away every single joy I have, right? And so it's like where, like with your mom, it's a journey, it's a process, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So what can we do to go, okay, well, you're going to drink, maybe you stick to only two cups, you're drinking really good coffee, and you're not going to drink it after a certain time in the day right? And enjoy it and feel it. I'm a really big on intentions. And so I'm like, you know, if you sit here and you tell me that this water is really bad and you tell yourself this water is toxic, it's going to be, right? And so I think we can do that with a lot of different um, foods and things as well. So the other thing you asked about was um, protein powder. Another very common conversation. What I would say is real food first. Protein powder is a really processed, I don't know what it is sometimes, right? And there's so many people talking about, well, should we have pea protein powder or hemp protein powder or animal, like whey? And I steer clear about from whey protein powder. And um, I don't use pea protein powder as much as possible because that can actually be, um, that can drive certain hormones and things. So we want to be a little careful. Plus it's a legume and we don't use a lot of legumes because that can mess with gut health. So if somebody's um, insistent, 
on doing a more of a vegan sort of a, or plant protein powder than hemp is usually what I would recommend. Um, and then, you know, we try to do, I really like paleo Valley's uh, protein powders that they use, not the way that they're, yeah. Yeah. And so, so there are some options out there. And then I ask, why do you need it? So some people do need extra protein and we watch that's where you know test assess address and tracking so tracking your food we can see where are their holes do we need some more protein are you having a hard time what's your appetite like there's a lot of people like we have people that are in all different situations so they might not be able to get much food in then we might use protein powder. So as much as possible, real food. And I would use personally, I would push people more if they're open to it, to using more of an animal-based protein powder. Interesting. So would that be like a collagen? Well, it depends. So I don't like to use collagen every day. You know, it doesn't have all of the amino acids in a collagen powder. So if somebody's needing it, we can utilize it as a tool. It can really help with gut health. So maybe three times a week, I wouldn't use it every day. Interesting. Yeah. And also too, just on the protein note, Jen, I've also read that too much protein can also knock someone out of ketosis. Is that true? It can. And again, that's why we use the Keto Mojo. That's why we're testing ketones and blood sugar. And um, again, we are moderate protein. That's what we like to do. So some people can handle less protein. Some people need a little bit more, but um, it can really help with satiety and it can help with blood sugar balance. So I don't, I want to utilize it, you know, the protein, but um, it can help with a ton of different things. Everyone is different and everyone needs a personalized approach. So driving that point home, the, the last of the three opinionated topics, Jen, was alcohol consumption. What are your thoughts on this? Because I know there's folks out there who say, oh, organic red wine, staple of the Mediterranean diet. Here's all the benefits. But I mean, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's such a sad story. It's such a sad conversation sometimes. But um, if somebody, you know, again, it depends on the person and meeting them where they are. Um, do I think that alcohol has a place in... Um, uh, one of our diet, uh, our nutrition plans when somebody is in the middle of a big time cancer journey. No, I'm just going to be straight up. No, it's inflammatory to the system. It's, it's not healthy and a, a good organic low carbohydrate red wine once in a while as a treat. Sure. But while somebody is, you know, if they're in the middle of treatment, they oftentimes people don't want it anyway. They don't feel great. They're like, I'm done. I'm good. So this does come up a lot, of course, in our conversations. And again, it's like, well, is this something that you are looking to do on an occasion for an occasion, a celebratory occasion? Great. Enjoy it. Have it. And that goes back to blood sugar balance too. When people are drinking alcohol, they really want to make sure they're having it with some food. Right. And so it's not, you know, in the evening, like as a nightcap, that's probably the worst thing we could have, the worst time that we can have alcohol. Um, red wine, I would say, is probably if I were to pick something, I love red wine and I just don't drink it much anymore. But um, that's what I would choose. And I would say, make sure again that it's organic, it's from Europe. 
and that it's low. You can get low alcohol um, wines. So, you know, that's kind of nice or a really good tequila with some lime juice and bubbly water, you know, but yeah, I mean, what do you think about it? I personally do not have any alcohol at all anymore. I mean, I used to enjoy an occasional glass of red wine. I grew up making wine with my grandpa. My family's from Italy. So he brought that tradition over to the States when they moved here. Um, So it's always been a cultural thing for me. But quite honestly, just since reading about, again, like how to help your body detoxify from excess estrogen, you want to optimize your liver health. Alcohol obviously impairs liver function, even if it is just you know a sip here and there. So I've just chosen to completely omit it. And I think the irony too is folks think that that glass of wine before bed could improve your sleep does not, does the complete opposite. So even if I were to have even like a half a glass of wine, Jen, I notice it in my sleep. I don't sleep as well. So I'm very, very sensitive to it. But I, I agree with everything you said. Well, we're on the same page. And again, it's me meeting people where they are. And that's our job. And so I'm going to give the information and then it's not my choice. You know, the question that I get often is, can I have, can I have this? Can I have that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Can you, you know, like, it's not my job to say yes or no. And I just provide the information. And I don't think that alcohol is, it's certainly not a um, health food or health drink. Yep. Absolutely, Jen. And there could be a whole other episode dedicated to solely to this this next question. And I'd love to have you back on, but we know fasting, and you touched on it before, has such incredible therapeutic benefits, especially for managing cancer progression. How can patients or clients rather effectively and safely practice it at home without having to feel like they're going to pass out or, you know, the need to be managed by a physician while they're doing it. Like what's a safe time frame? Yeah, that's great. I love it. And um, there's different ways of thinking about fasting. So one of the things that I would say, um, a principle that I've learned from Dr. Nisha is that everybody, if we all, except for, you know, infants, pregnant women, things like that, you know, you want to be a little bit different, but we could um, benefit all of us by going 13 to 14 hours without food. And so that's starting point. That to me is an intermittent fast. I ask people, I'm like, well, are you intermittent fasting? And they're like, no, no. And I was like, well, are you, when are you, you know, what are your eating times? And they're doing 13 to 14 hours. And I'm like, give yourself some credit because actually, yes, you are. Right. And so if we can start with that, that 13 to 14 hours, and then a good rule of thumb is to go at least, you know, three hours between dinner and bedtime. And I know for me, that can be more of a challenge now because it's summer and everything kind of shifts a little bit later in the evening. But I'm really working on that. Like, how can I eat an early dinner and then just have some maybe hibiscus tea at night or some chamomile tea or peppermint or whatever and not eat in the evenings? So um, three hours and then you can start easing into it. So maybe one day a week you do longer. You do 16 hours or 18 hours without food. And then you bring it up to maybe you do a 24-hour fast. So if you all of a sudden are like, and I've had people that do this, they're like, yep, I just cold turkeyed it and did a seven day water fast. Well, that might be a little bit scary, you know, and really important too, for me, 
for people to have, if they can have a keto mojo and test their numbers, because it gets a little bit scary when somebody has really low blood sugar, which they could by fasting, obviously, and their ketones are still low. So they're not producing ketones and their blood sugar is low. Then they could be in trouble. If their ketones are up, they're kind of coming to the rescue for the, the glucose being low. So that's kind of another way to kind of make sure they're doing it safely. The other really, really, really important aspect to this, and you're right, we could talk about this for a whole other um, episode, but if you um, make sure that you're doing enough electrolytes, because electrolytes get, they become depleted. That's the sodium, the potassium, um, and we feel like junk. So if you're keeping up on those, then you can feel a lot more energetic than if you're just depleted of those electrolytes. So a lot of times people are like, oh, I feel so low blood sugar. And I'm like, yes, and maybe it's low electrolytes, right? Yep. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I'm a big fan of um, Element, Drink Element, mm-hmm. Element Tea. I know a lot of people take that. What are some alternatives? I know that like pink Himalayan sea salt, like if you sprinkle that in water with totally. you know, a splash of like pineapple juice or something, it's also equally as effective. Yeah. And I probably wouldn't do pineapple juice just because that's, of the, you know, that could It'll break your fast. Right. Yeah. But you can do the, the sea salt and I have the chunks, you know, I get the chunks at the health food store and I'll just toss a couple in my mouth. Like, well, there was my breakfast or whatever, you know? So Himalayan sea salt and water. I like to drink warm water a lot when I'm fasting. So that's nice because you can sprinkle the salt in and it sort of dissolves. And for some reason, you know, sometimes when I'm fasting, I get chilly, right? So, you know, you can go to that one one meal a day. People call it OMAD. Maybe try that. And then the coolest next step is like a 36-hour fast because you're just sleeping on either end of the day. So it's it that feels like a really nice and just step into it and give it a shot and then you know we can fast a little bit longer and just keep trying to go a little bit longer and see how people feel. I do like working with people when they're going to do longer fasts because it's nice to be able to make sure they're monitoring their blood sugar and their ketones. We do use a lot of fasting for treatment too for folks and if I were to say that there's one thing that I noticed the most from you know as a really great like um, you know, improvement for people is when they fast around treatment. And again, you utilizing somebody that knows what they're doing to help guide this, but the side effect mitigation from that is incredible. Incredible. Mm -hmm. Not for every single person, right. But for a lot of people, I love hearing those stories. Like, Oh my gosh, I had no nausea. I felt great. Even patients receiving high dose IVC, I've read that fasting, comp, like in conjunction with that, super super effective. So love that. I have used, you know, kind of. I'll use the chronometer. Um, I always call it chronometer, but the food blogging app, and I've developed some sort of five day fasting mimicking diets for folks that aren't up for doing no food. And again, consistent theme here: personalization and flexibility. I, I love it, Jen. I'd be really interested. Could you share with us one of your favorite, I guess you could call it success stories of maybe someone with an aggressive cancer that you've worked with who was able to, I don't know, go into remission through, through changing their nutrition? Yes. Um, I could get a little emotional with this one, but one thing that I want to say is that success can mean a lot of different things. 
And of course we work with a lot of people and not everybody, you know, um, there it's a hard, it's hard, right? Some people don't make it. And I still feel like those stories are huge success stories. You know, um, everybody, sorry, everybody on this journey is, you know, that we get to work with is a success and they learn a lot about themselves, about life, maybe about death. And it's beautiful. It's it's so, you know, I can't, we have so many amazing people that we get to work with. We have, I was, you know, thinking about this young boy, this 11 year old kid that was so much fun to work with and his family. And, you know, he's, his parents still send me messages and they're like, just had another scan. We're doing great. You know, he's doing awesome. And it's so beautiful. And I got to sit with this 11 year old kid that he was so funny. We talked about um, digestion a lot, which is a big topic. And he showed up with the poop emoji hat for our meeting on his head. And he always came. He was so sweet. He was so vibrant. And, you know, he was really sick and he's still alive. And his parents kicked butt, making sure that he was supported in his nutrition. And it was hard and they did it and they're still doing it. Um, So he's a really great story that, you know, but there are so many like that. You know, and we just, we're doing this. Um, I don't know if you knew this. I think I, maybe I told you, but we're doing a group membership. Yes. I was going to ask you about that. So exciting. So we just started it uh, three months ago and had our first sort of session of the nest. And it was, it's been amazing. We meet once a month and it's a live call with myself, some of our team members, and eventually we'll bring in some guest speakers and things like that. But we have a new topic every month and um, it's, there's an educational piece, but then a lot of it's like this group support because what we wanted to create was a community and that's what we're doing. So we have a private chat that people are, you know, have access to, we share recipes and feelings and all of that. But um, our last one was just Wednesday morning of this session. And we all kind of did an introduction and talked about why we were there. And it was so great to see these people that I've had the gift of working with for years and they're all success stories. You know, some of them might be in a reoccurrence, but they're just still thriving. I love that, Jen. Yeah. I I think that's incredible. I feel like so many people now are going more towards that, having like group sessions with live Q and A's. It's so helpful because other folks can also share their stories. And the more people, in my opinion, you have, the better. So I'll definitely include a link for that in the show notes. And where can listeners find you? Well, on we're on Instagram. You know, I think it's at Remission Nutrition. And our website is remissionnutrition.com. Um, so that's how they can find us. Uh, we have a lovely uh, woman in our office. She's the... Um, she does admin, but she really is client relations manager. Her name's Anna and she's spectacular. And she's really great because she is a human that you can actually call and speak with. Game changer. Love it. And I, I love your Instagram account. It's one of my favorites. You have such wonderful information on there. I'm always checking to see if I missed any posts. So that is a daily check-in for me. Thank you. Jen, this has been truly wonderful. This has been one of my favorite episodes. So I'm just so grateful for you and your time and your knowledge. 
And my last question for you is what does being well and strong mean to you? Hmm. Yes. Well, I've been thinking about that question a lot because I've been listening to your podcast and I know you asked that question. Um, I think the first thing would be to tie in what we've been talking about and that's to have a really balanced and healthy, and I would say robust terrain. So watching that's for all of us really monitoring different labs, um, checking in on our self-care see how we're doing. How's our sleep? Are we getting out in nature? Are we moving our body? Are we having joy? How's our food? How's our community? All of those things. So really, you know, kind of, I think about it kind of like the wellness wheel that a lot of people talk about. I want to develop, like, think about it as like the terrain wheel, right? And I want that to be really round and full and balanced. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I think about is to be really present in the moment and have gratitude for the good stuff and even the not so good stuff. That was beautiful, Jen. I'm working on the latter half of that in particular, but it's so true. I mean, if we don't experience the bad, we can't appreciate the good. And I think you have to recognize that, right? Especially with cancer, when you're in a valley, you're going to be approaching a mountain at some point in the future. So You got to keep your eyes looking up. Well, Jen, again, so appreciative of you and all the wonderful work you do. I'm so excited to share this with listeners and I would love to have you back on. I know your schedule is crazy, but hopefully uh, I can get you back on within the next few months or so to chat about so many other topics that we have just touched the surface on. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating, and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong. Be strong.